so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. As we live in the tension between the fall and the full restoration of all things, suffering is an undeniable fact of life. What comfort does the presence of God have to offer to the suffering family? And what does the gospel say to these families? At our national conference, Eric Erickson spoke about reconciling God's goodness with our suffering. We hope you find this message helpful. So my name is Eric Erickson. I am a talk show host in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I tend to talk politics, so it's nice to actually talk about life instead. To talk about life, I want to use Lazarus as a jumping off point. I've always been fascinated with the story of Lazarus. Uh, It is a story I remember my grandmother telling me as a kid reading the Golden Books Bible with all the illustrations of Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. I accept the story as true, as literal, and I want to read part of it to you now as a jumping off point. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whenever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. When she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary in private, saying, the teacher is here and calling for you. 
When Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The word of God. A week before Christmas in 2006, my wife was given six months to live. The same day, I lost my job. My partners had called me. My wife was at a doctor's appointment, and they told me we had run out of money. We are going to have to come up with something. I would need to find a new job. And as she was walking in the front door for me to tell her, she had this look on her face. I knew something was wrong. They had found a blood clot in her jugular vein and wanted her to go to the hospital because in the scans, they had found spots in her lungs. And so off she went. I never got to tell her about my job situation before she left. And that afternoon, they performed a lung biopsy because of the spots in her lungs, and they did what they do in movies. They called me into a back hallway in a windowless little room with her parents and told us she had a rare form of cancer. It had spread to her lungs. There was nothing they could do. They had six, she had six months to live. And all I could think was I had a one-year-old in daycare. It was almost six o'clock. And if I didn't get her, we didn't have the money to pay the extra time, and I needed to go get her. But there was a wreck. It had been storming. The doctors had to go to the emergency room, and so I got to stay with my wife until she woke up from anesthesia to be the one to tell her that she had six months to live. Then I had to rush off and get my child from daycare. By the time I got home, all I could do was sink into the mud next to the car, lean against the back tire of our car, and cry. And my one-year-old just kept patting me on the face as if everything was gonna be okay. And I finally summoned the strength. You know, people talk about, Christians talk about the strength that transcends all understanding. It was at that moment I, I knew what people talk about when they say that. Was able to get us up inside, cleaned up, fed, get her down for a nap, wait for family to come to go back to the hospital. To cut a long story short, the doctors realized they weren't really sure what they were looking at. They realized they had made a misdiagnosis. They sent it off to the Mayo Clinic, and my wife was perfectly fine. Within 48 hours, my partners called me from work and informed me that a company in Washington wanted to buy my company, and I had a job contract for three years. Everything was fine. And life went on back to normal. I got a job at CNN where I was a political contributor for three years, started a talk radio show in Atlanta, became a guest host for Rush Limbaugh, started, moved over to Fox News. I've been a talk show host in Atlanta now since 2011. And then two years ago, the actual nightmare came. As most nightmares begin, I joined CrossFit. <laughs> uh, like I, I turned 40, was out of shape, sitting behind a desk. I, I'm married to a woman who cooks bacon for the drippings to make cornbread. Uh, I needed to do something. But so I joined CrossFit at 40, and I, I just, I struggled to breathe. Um, couldn't catch up. I'm old. My goodness. They got me doing burpees and thrusters and all sorts of things that I'm sure will be done in hell for those people who don't find the resurrection. Um, I think hell is a CrossFit box. <laughs> so I moved back to a trainer, and I still couldn't keep up. And it, it got to the point where I was climbing the stairs at night out of breath. 
And it wasn't CrossFit, it was just walking. Uh, and I finally got to the point where I laid down in bed and was out of breath. Just the mere act of reclining in bed, I was out of breath. And my wife made me go to the doctor. And, you know, every woman in here is nodding their head along. They know their husband doesn't want to go to the doctor. I didn't, and my wife gave me no choice. So I went to a doctor. He sent me off to a CT scan. And I'll never forget, I'm lying in, laying on the CT pad. I've had the scan and the guy comes in and he yells back in the room, should I strap him down? And I started laughing and said, is it that bad? And he put his hand on my chest. He said, sir, you should be dead. Don't move. Please don't move. And they rushed me into an ICU. Uh, they started treating me with uh, the drugs they give to stroke victims. And I've got two IVs in me. They're trying to hook me up. A, a vein is burst. They're putting blood thinners in. So this bruise is spreading from my fingertips. I'm just one giant bruise. I look like a smurf. And the doctor is out in the, the ICU and there's a, my scan is up on a, on a screen and he yells in to the nurses and asks if that body had been taken to the morgue yet. And he's talking about me. I had not been old and couldn't keep up with CrossFit. My lungs had been filling up with blood clots for about four months. It was not the spontaneous get a blood clot, fall over dead. It was my lungs were shutting down. My heart was shutting down. I was dying, literally dying. My blood oxygen level was at about 80%. Uh, meanwhile, my phone had been ringing the entire time and I couldn't get to it. I finally got to it and it was my wife calling. She had had to go get the kids out of, from school. And while she was getting the kids from school, the Mayo Clinic died, called and those spots she had gotten in 2006, turns out they were seeing people with lung cancer who had had those spots. So the day I got put in the ICU and was very literally dying, my wife was suspected to have lung cancer. And sure enough, she has a very rare incurable genetic form of lung cancer. She takes a small pill, it keeps her cancer in remission, and she has her next scans October 30th. Her name's Christy. Every three months with metronomic regularity, we hold our breath and life stops, and she has another round of scans to see if the cancer's growing. Her therapy is a Harley Davidson. She did the I have cancer, you have to buy me a Harley card, and so I got her motorcycle. Her therapy is that. Now, Life did not stop. I was doing politics. I was one of those conservatives who said I didn't think I could support the president in 2016. We had protesters literally show up on our front porch to threaten us. My kids were yelled at in the store that their father was destroying the country. They were coming home crying from school, being bullied. Other kids saying I was going to get shot or they didn't like my kids because their parents didn't like me. And that was just 2016. My wife joined a Bible study, shared her story with the people in the Bible study, at one point, a lady came up to her after the Bible study was over and said she'd pray for her, but she really wanted to punch me. So I finally, I had enough. I needed to make sure my kids knew what was important in life. I knew if they Googled me, don't ever Google me. I'm the one guy in my kids' school who the teachers know never Google. I needed them to know the good, the bad, the ugly. I needed them to know the truth, but I also needed them to know what I thought was real. And so I wrote a book for them. It's called Before You Wake, about all the things I want them to know that are important. And that gets me back to Lazarus. And the first thing I wanna tell you that I learned from all of this is the thing that you don't wanna hear when you're going through these sorts of things. And it's the thing that particularly Christians in the South are really bad about. You're, you're in the bed in the ICU, you look like a Smurf because you're blue from head to toe from all the drugs they've gotten you on. And somebody wants you to know this is all for God. When you're, when you're hurting, you probably don't really want to know that you're suffering for God's glory, but it is true. And so know it now when you've got good times, when you're here in good health, that 
Your suffering really is for God's glory. Look at Lazarus. So when the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, pay attention to that last part for just a minute. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. Jesus loved, so he stayed put. Had he rushed on to Lazarus, we just have one more miracle in the Bible of Jesus healing a sick man. Our suffering is for God's glory, and I, I can tell you that firsthand now, having been through what I went through. I did a book signing a couple of years ago, uh, I guess 2017, last year, and I had been very open. I have told people what I'm telling you about our health struggles. I wasn't going to hide from the fact that we'd gone through this, and I had a guy come up to me at this book signing, and he was laughing. He was happy. He said, I want you to know that your story made me feel better about my life. He had been diagnosed with a terrible illness, and he had gone to tell his girlfriend that he was sick. And before he could get the words out of his mouth, she informed him that she was pregnant with his best friend's child, and they were getting married. And he sat in his car, and he cried. And he turned on his car to leave her driveway, and there I was on the radio telling him exactly what I, the story I just told y'all. And he said, you know, I realized my life sucked, but it was nothing compared to yours. <laughs> He's now happily married. Uh, it, 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 my suffering and telling the story gave comfort to him in his life. But it wasn't just that. Other people found purpose in their life because of what we went through, people finding ways to help us taking meals to us, helping us financially, praying for us, the ability to pray for someone else to relieve your mind of your own burdens. It's actually a gift. God found a way to glorify himself through our suffering by providing other people purpose in life that they otherwise would not have had, by providing people perspective about their own life. Our suffering gives ourselves and other people perspective and purpose. We, my family, were as able to relate in ways we hadn't been able to relate before to other people. And the other thing is God's got a plan and his own schedule. We, we want God to hurry up with these things. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so he stayed for two days. Lazarus died. He went in the grave. His body was rotting. His flesh smelled. And Jesus waited. And then he said, let's go. And he went. If this was an action sequence in a movie, this would be the nonstop action sequence. Jesus gets up and he moves. He heads, to, he heads to Lazarus. Martha comes. Mary comes. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. It's one big action sequence. When God starts moving, he doesn't stop until he's finished. He may not start on your schedule. He may not start on the schedule you want, but when he starts, he's not going to stop. It reminds me almost of Genesis 1, the scene, Jesus calling life out of darkness, Lazarus out of the cave. Uh, he spends this time, and then the story stops. Then God rests. He waited until Lazarus was dead. And how many people were led to God by seeing the miracle that wouldn't have seen it had he just gone and healed Lazarus from being sick? This may happen to you multiple times at multiple points in your life. It may not be one big, long action sequence, but when God starts moving, he's going to get you where he needs you to get. And then, you know, he's okay with you not realizing it. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. Now, Martha nor Mary were angry with Jesus. They knew what he was capable of, or at least they thought they knew what he was capable of, but they didn't really understand and they didn't really appreciate it until Lazarus was walking out of the cave. We don't understand either. Often in the moment while we're lying in the hospital bed, while we're suffering, while we have a child who's sick or dying or, or a wife or a husband who's ill or died or dying, and sometimes it's because we don't want to ask God too much and he wants to deliver more than we ask, but we don't realize it at the time. We realize it in hindsight and God's totally okay with that. My wife's going to die one day, probably of lung cancer. Right now, I'm just praying that her scans October 30th come out fine. We've got a 13-year-old, we have a nine-year-old, and I want us to have a long life together. I don't want us to just enjoy our kids growing up. I want us to enjoy our grandkids growing up. That's what I want. I don't know what God wants. I don't know his plan. And I know that I'm supposed to try to conform myself to what he wants, not him conforming himself to me. And it's hard. Faith can be hard. It's not easy all the time. But after the fact, I know that I'll be able to see God working. I, I didn't know how God was working when my wife was in the hospital the first time, given six months to live. It was hard at the time when I was in the hospital recovering, trying to breathe to see God working. But now I can look back in hindsight and say, this, this was God. I, I can see him working. It's not that he was punishing me to glorify him. He was using this fallen world to help draw me closer to him and to draw other people to him, to give us focus, to give us purpose, to give us him. And that leads me to my last point. Jesus wept. Faith can sound abstract, particularly to people who don't have it. Jesus is not abstract. He's real. We've got obligations to him. He was with me in the mud when I was crying over my wife. He was with my wife when she was in Arizona having a lung biopsy. He was with me in the hospital while I was breathing. He's with all of us. He's with our kids. Now, a lot of people who don't believe this they're probably thinking, well, if God's so great and good, if he can call Lazarus out of the grave back from the dead, why didn't he just call the cancer out of your wife's lungs? Why didn't he call your kid back to life? Why doesn't he call your lungs to good health? It's not an abstract. I've been asked this question. I've been asked this question. Do you believe in this imaginary sky God? If he was real and he did this to this guy, Lazarus, why didn't he do it for you? It's not an easy question to answer. And honestly, saying it's to God's glory, it's not really reassuring at the moment. It's not all that convincing for a lot of people, but it's true. And sometimes the answer that's not all that convincing is still the right answer. It's still true. It is to God's glory. And whatever else is true, Jesus could cure us tomorrow, but he's probably not going to. And when we get bitter and angry and, and want to know why, well, look at Lazarus and the rest of the story. Jesus called Lazarus up from the grave, and then he went to his own grave. And he conquered it. And if you hear nothing else that I tell you, I need you to hear this. Because this is what I ingrain in my children. This is what I tell my wife. There have been more than one night where I have been outside in the middle of the night in the darkness, looking up at the stars and saying, why? Why does my wife have cancer? Why can't I breathe today? Why are my kids getting bullied at school because of me? Why? Doesn't seem fair. And when I'm calm and still, the voice whispers back. I can hear it in my soul. Jesus went through it. 
When you throw yourself a pity party because your family's suffering, because you're suffering, because tragedy happened. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, he told the apostles. Scripture says he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and a sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We don't get to escape any of this, but neither did Jesus. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was nailed to a cross. He died on the cross. He came into Jerusalem on a Sunday with people laying palm branches, and by Thursday, they were yelling, crucify him. He knows your pain. You know, Scripture says of this passage on Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And we do a disservice to the passage because what it actually means is Jesus was outraged. He wasn't outraged at Mary. He wasn't outraged at Martha. He was outraged at the effects of the fallen world on Lazarus. He was outraged at the people around Mary and Martha who had been so driven to despair that they even gave up the hope of the resurrection. In your suffering and my suffering and my family's suffering, you cannot give up the hope of the resurrection. We get no reprieve from the world. But Jesus has been through the loss of loved ones. He's been through the pain and agony inflicted on the body. He's been through the rejection of others. He's been through being falsely accused. He's been through being nailed on a cross. He's lived through injustice and he died too. He's been there. You can call on him because he knows exactly what you're going through. He's been through it too. His suffering was for God's glory and so was ours. And when he acts, he's gonna act. And now... I, I got to take a tangent here for just a minute because what I'm saying to you about suffering and relying on Jesus, and he's been through this too, I, I just there's a related tangent here, and that's on forgiveness. Because when you're suffering, people can say things to you that it just rolls off your back when you're not suffering. And when you're suffering, it'll burr under your skin and make you really embittered. People will say something they think is nice, something complimentary, something to calm you, and it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And you're either going to let it fester or you're going to forgive them. You've got to be willing to show other people more grace and forgiveness than you ever expect to be shown in return, particularly when you're suffering. Christ on the cross, after having been beaten and tortured, said, Father, forgive them. If you can't bring yourself to forgive other people, what you're saying is what happened to you is worse than what happened to Jesus on the cross. And notice what Jesus said on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. He did not say, Father, forgive them if they line up within 30 seconds and tell me they're sorry for what they did to me and then I'll forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them. There were no conditions attached. The sins of the world were piled up on Christ. Martin Luther said he was the greatest sinner on the planet when he was on the cross. All the sins of eternity piled up on top of him. The sun went dark. The father turned his back on the son, and he still said, forgive them. Are you really, if you can't forgive, are you willing with God as your witness to say what happened to you is worse than what happened to Jesus? And then there's this. There were people who saw Lazarus come out of the tomb and they believed they would not have believed otherwise. But there were people who saw Lazarus come out of the tomb and they didn't believe. They were embittered and they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Not everyone is going to find faith in Christ. And you're gonna have to pray for those people. Now, I wanna leave you with this. We are like Elijah's servant who couldn't see the armies of angels surrounding them, but they're there. And they're led by someone we can call on, whose presence we can feel. You can trust in him. He brings bread from heaven. He brings water from rocks. He raised us up from the dust of the earth. 
He stitched us all together in our mother's wombs, and he brought us all here today, this week, to be together in fellowship. And he wants to be in fellowship with us. When I was having my lung issues, I remember I went to bed one night, I went upstairs, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And she burst into tears. And she started crying. She says, I made a deal with God. If one of us is going to die, it's going to be me. And I couldn't sleep. So I crept out of bed and I went downstairs and I wrote this letter to my kids that became my book. It's part confession. It's even part cookbook. If I die, my kids need to know how I make the cinnamon rolls. It's part biography. It's part testimony of the things I want them to know are true. And I want to leave you with what I wrote to my kids. Christy and I are going to die one day. We all will. We don't know the future. But I know these things I want my children to know are true. I worry more than I ever should about my kids. My mind races to horror stories. Gunner's headed off to play in the woods. What if he gets lost or bit by a snake? Evelyn's going swimming. What if she drowns? I hope it's natural to be overprotective and overworry and overthink the dangers that lie ahead for our kids. I just want them to love God, love us, and be kind. Most of all, Gunner and Evelyn, your mom and I love you. We go into your room and we watch you sleep. Evelyn, I keep part of the fabric from your favorite stuffed animal in my travel bag. I hold it in my hands to think of you. Gunner, I keep your laugh on my phone so I can listen to it and hear you. We both love you. When the day comes that you can no longer see us face to face, we'll be just behind the veil of eternity, watching and waiting to hold you once again. Remember, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with have the power to demolish strongholds. For our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. It is God who arms us with strength. He's the God who avenges us, who saves us from our enemies. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God himself will fight for you. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The Lord is our strength, our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our shield, our stronghold. No weapon forged against you will prosper and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants, for the battle is the Lord's. Therefore, put on the full army of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. Your mom and I love you. Thank you all very much for your time. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. For more information on this topic and other free resources, visit ERLC.com. And join us next week as we listen to a panel on the role of story and song in parenting and family life.